This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday episode. This is such a good episode, and it's one of those hot topics that we all tend to stress about, and that is our children eating. It seems so simple, like we all eat food, we need food to live, why is feeding our children so stressful? But it is stressful. It doesn't have to be stressful, and I think after listening to this episode, you will find a weight lifted off your shoulders, and maybe you will approach mealtimes in a different way. In this episode, I am speaking with psychologist Gitte Holm-Muller. And I hope I said that correctly. I know when I spoke with her a few weeks back, she said that I pronounced her name perfectly. And I think it's because in Canada, we grow up learning French. So we tend to say things in a certain way. So I was really proud of myself. But now I forget the proper pronunciation. I literally went on Google and looked at how to pronounce her name. It's G-I-T-T-E. And I'm pretty sure it's Gite. Gite. I hope that's right. Anyways, she is a psychologist. She is originally from Denmark. And so we do end up talking in this episode about the difference in, you know, people's relationship with food and with mealtimes when you go from Europe to North America. I know I have spent a lot of time in Italy. I was there for three months and it was a huge culture shock when it came to mealtimes and food and just how people operate even when they go to a restaurant to eat. So yeah, we talk a little bit about that. And this is also why she started Real Food Hero. Her website is beautiful. It's um, Nordic Family Table. So definitely check that out. I will put all her links in the episode notes. But yeah, when she moved to North America, she noticed such a difference and noticed how parents were struggling so much to get their children to eat and struggling around mealtimes. And so she really started to focus on this in her practice. She lives in Charleston, South Carolina. I was going to say Southern Charm because the only real reason I know of Charleston is because I watch Southern Charm, but that is not the name of the city. That is just a reality TV show, Renee. So she is in Charleston. We both share a lot of the same views when it comes to food and our relationship with food and how we approach mealtimes with our children. She has some great tips, some great ways to look at things that will probably change the way you think about feeding your kids. I know you guys are going to love this conversation, so without further ado, please welcome Gitte Holm-Muller to The Mom Room. So to start, I thought you could tell us a little bit about yourself, your family. I'm curious to hear about your training and then why you chose this specific topic, feeding children, to specialize in. 
what really got me into it was a coincidence in reality, because when we moved to America like three years ago, we quickly realized, my family and I, that things were just different here. And, and the way that people relate to eating and the way the, the culture of, you know, the dinner table and everything, it was just so different from what we were used to in Denmark. So I quickly realized that, wow, this is just so different. And we talked a lot about it. And what I, because I'm a psychologist, I quickly realized too that there are so many dynamics around the dinner table and so many, you know, psychological things that are surrounding us when we want to get our kids to eat. And whereas people often think that, you know, we we can just bribe our way out of it, we can just give them this or that, we actually need to step back from all that. So so giving or just, you know, digging into the psychological angle was really just so interesting for me. What are some big differences that you find? Because even when I go travel in Europe, the funniest thing ever, I spent three months in Italy and I specifically remember my friend and I, we were at some restaurant somewhere. We had plans to go down to the beach after we had breakfast. But in Europe, it's so like they will give you all the time in the world to sit there and eat. Whereas here, like Canada is very similar to the US. It's like, here's your food, here's your coffee, here's the bill, like get out. It's like they just want to turn tables and make money. And, you know, you think that, oh, giving us a lot of time to sit down and eat, that would be lovely. But then when we had that opportunity in Italy, both my friend and I are sitting there and we're like, uh, let's go. Like what's taking so long? And we're the only ones that are like in this major rush to just like quickly eat and get up. But it's a totally different eating environment there. But what are some big things that you notice a difference in when it comes to family meal times, like from Europe to here? Well, I think you're you're spot on in that, you know, the hurrying to get, you know, something to eat and then get on with your life. And I think that's one of the biggest differences from Europe to the US and probably Canada too, that here people perceive meal times and eating as something that we just need to, you know, get over and done with, move on with our lives not important. It's just basically fuel for our bodies. It's just nutrition, nothing else. Whereas in Europe and also in Southern Europe, but also definitely where I'm from, we perceive of it as something that's really, it's a social institution in a way. It's a social and cultural institution. The way we sit at a dinner table, that's where we spend a lot of time. And that's where we talk to our kids. That's where we insist on knowing them. And, you know, that's where we civilize them and socialize them and, and really get to know them. So in, the, in that way, you can say that mealtimes are our way of raising our kids. So that's really our guarantee that every day we can actually sit down with our kids and we can, we can talk, we can, you know, ask about that bully in school, or we can ask what they want to be when they grow up and stuff like that. And that's really the, I think that's one of the most important things to take away from the differences. But also, because that's more the, you know, the social and the, and the psychological angle of it, but also the eating itself. like. In Europe, we're very much used to eating food that's cooked from scratch and that's, you know, prepared in different new fantastic ways and stuff like that. Whereas in the U.S., I feel like people are just, they're eating to be full and to be fueled. And it doesn't matter what it is. They are very attuned to what I call nutritionism. That's the idea of that, you know, food is just the nutrients. That's really all food is. And I think that's really a poor, you know, approach in a way, because I feel like food is just so, so much more than that. It's an experience every time. Well, it should be, but it isn't if you, you know, do juice bars and vitamin, or sorry, juice diets and vitamin bars. It, that, that will just reduce it to, some, to, to, to the nutrients, really, basically. I feel like that's also a very big difference. So like I was saying, I lived in Italy for three months, and living here, I always have issues with bloating and I can't eat gluten here. Any product that's made with gluten, if I eat too much of it, I get really bad bloating every single afternoon. Like it's terrible. So I always try and avoid gluten. But when I was in Italy, that's literally all they eat there. So I was eating a ton of pasta and pizza and because that's all they had. Never got sick once because it's all made from scratch and they don't process stuff. And it's the kind of pasta and bread where I would go and buy it fresh and then it was like rotten the next day. <laughs> like you have to eat it. 
Exactly. And that's the beauty of it, isn't it? Like it's really food that's made from scratch without being highly processed and without being, you know, changed and modified in tons of ways. It's really just food that can rot. So you better eat it because it's fresh now and it's good now. And, and also, yeah, the gluten thing is that it's, it's real. I mean, my husband, he, he bakes sourdough all the time and he's really into that, but he also, you know, here people are like, okay, sourdough, we heard about that. That's, that's supposed to be really good, but what about the gluten? Can we get sick from it and stuff? And they never do. They eat it and they get sick from it. Oh, totally. So we wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of two approaches of parenting or when it comes to mealtimes that parents fall into. So there's the having complete control over mealtime. And then there's more a complete lack of control. I feel like I'm kind of somewhere in the middle, but I was curious, like, can you tell us about these two different approaches and what could we be doing to not fall into one or the other? Yes, absolutely. So yes, you're completely right. Often I think people approach mealtimes with the all or nothing approach or the black and white one. So like either we go all in on controlling our kids to eat and I decide basically everything they eat, I decide what's on the table, they don't get a say in anything. Either that or the complete opposite approach, like okay, kids, so uh, what do you want to eat? Like, and what, when you ask kids that, it's really doing them a disservice because, you know, you're opening up the world to them like this and you're saying, so from anything in the world, what do you want to eat? And that will not only confuse them, confuse them, but it will also make them usually pick some of the same things that they are used to and familiar with. And because that's how they work. And that's not going to broaden their palate and their taste, uh, expose their taste buds to, to new things. So that's really doing them a big disservice. And the other approach about controlling and being completely on top of everything and not letting them decide anything and just basically forcing them to finish their plates or take one more bite or whatever we have in that toolbox is not teaching our kids to attune to their inner cues and their bodies. And it's not teaching them to listen to their tummies, really. So we need to find out a way to do something in between that will both give us some power and give the children some power because we can't only give them power and or only give ourselves power. So basically, I don't know if you've heard of Ellen Satter. She is, I think she was a dietitian, but she's written this book about the division of responsibility. And basically what she's saying is that we need to, to make ourselves clear on what it is that we have responsibility for. So parents we ha- are, you know, they can decide the serving factors, basically, they can decide what's served, when it's served, and where it's served. But the children, on the other hand, they get to decide what to eat from that, like what to eat from the table, how much to eat from the table, and also, and, and that's even more controversial, if they want to eat anything at all. Because as she said, you can't really force these, you can't force kids to eat, because if you do, you're just going to yeah, do them a big disservice, and you're going to you know, associate these mealtimes with bad experiences, and we don't want that. So basically, by the time you have served the meal and put it on the, on the table, your job is done. And that can sound really like to a, to a lot of parents that can sound like, okay, that's pretty permissive and that's pretty, you know, laid back or is it, it's too gentle. And, you know, what if our kids just don't ever get to eating then? But they will because they learn. And the more we can actually place that responsibility with them, the better it is. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. 
I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How old are your children? I have a four-year-old and I have a uh, seven-year-old and a nine-year-old. Okay. So let's say, because I'm thinking about Milo, he's like two and a half, a little over two and a half. So if you're serving the food, let's say he doesn't want to eat it. So that's fine. Then what? So now let's say it's like 6.30, 7 o'clock, it's getting towards bedtime. Do you just not give them anything? Because my whole thing is that I'm worried that he'll end up being hungry. So sometimes I'll make him a smoothie and put a bunch of nutrients in it just so that he has something in his stomach. But I've had to work a lot on not being stressed so much about dinner time. And I don't know why there's so much emphasis placed on dinner time. It's like, oh, you have to eat dinner. You have to eat dinner. I think it's just ingrained in us. But the more I read about it, it's like sometimes they're not going to be that hungry. Like sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I have a bowl of fruit and yogurt for dinner and that's all I feel like. And I don't think anything of it for myself. But when Milo doesn't eat, I'm like, oh, my God. So I've really worked on not stressing so much about dinner and the quantity of what he's eating. But yeah, so what would you do in that situation if your child just doesn't want to eat? Do you give them something afterwards or no? I love this question because it's such a, it's spot on, you know, in terms of what many parents ask me, because often it's, there's so much anxiety associated with these mealtimes with our kids, because we're like, either, as you said, what if they don't sleep at night? What can I do? I mean, I need to make sure that they do. But the other side of it is also like, it is almost like if kids don't eat and we can't feed them the way we want to, it's like we're bad parents. So that's often the perceptions that we're struggling with when we're trying to approach this. But back to what you said, so, so what I would do is not only look at that mealtime and the time up until he's going to bed, I think I would take a look at, you know, the whole day. I would say, okay, so if we actually provide him with a schedule, so an eating schedule and a snack schedule, because little ones, especially if they're two and a half, they, they need more than just the three main mealtimes, right? So if you make sure that maybe an hour and a half or two hours before dinner that, you know, that's, that's when you stop serving snacks. So you know that he will have built up a fair appetite for dinner time. Then when you serve dinner, I would also definitely make sure that there are some safe foods on the table. And by safe foods, I mean foods that your little one is familiar with and that you know that he can like. Some days he will and some days he won't. That's just how it is with little ones. That you, you know he can like them. So I would definitely make sure that there are one or two safe foods on the table for every time you serve dinner. Because in that way, when they come to the table, and it's really important that it's there when they go to the table, because that way you're going to disarm the dinner table in a way. You're going to deflate that conflict that could potentially arise from coming to a table and seeing, oh my God, oh no, it's full of things that I don't even know. Mom and dad are probably going to pressure me to eat it and I can't. And I, you know, and their day was long enough as it is. So they're probably exhausted and tired and cannot, you know, oversee this plate and this table. So I would definitely do that. So they know, okay, I can see the pasta or I can see the bread over there. For my kids, it's pasta and, and, and whole, whole wheat bread or something or something like that. Or it could be corn on a cob. It could be basically anything that's kind of filling, you know, and it's, that's something that they like. Make those filling foods, vary them from day to day so you make sure that they don't get stuck in only bread and pasta. Maybe make a list of the, those safe foods that your kids will like. 
And, and also, so you're asking also, can I, can I just, you know, basically vouch for that? Okay, I serve dinner and then you can't have any more. What I do is that, and I think that's basically part of the gentle and respectful mealtime approach, is to make sure there's always the option of a late night bite, which is basically, I call it a late night bite, but it could also, you could call it a snack or whatever. And that's to make sure that if they have been too overwhelmed with whatever was on the table or they, you know, they had unprocessed stuff from their day and that just made them collapse at the table or have a tantrum or whatever, make sure that they actually have that option later. But I want to say about that, whereas we want to make things exciting at the table, you do not want to make that late night bite very exciting. You want to make that dull and as boring as can be almost because then you know that, okay, they have been offered something before they go to bed. So we want, you know, if they were hungry, they were going to do that. What are your go-tos for the late night bite? <laughs> My go-to is a banana or oatmeal. And oatmeal at ours, we don't, we don't really cook it. It's a, I, I think it's a Danish thing. I don't know if people in America do that, but we just basically have oat and cold milk on it. That's it. And that's pretty, it's fairly easy. It's pretty boring. We even get it for breakfast. Sometimes if they're hungry enough, they want that. And that's totally fine. And also I want to say about that, don't give it too much airtime. Don't evaluate it like, oh my God, yeah, okay, you're really lucky to get that today because whew, that was it was really not good that you didn't eat dinner. Hunger is hunger and needing food is just needing food. It's not good or bad. So give it to them in a neutral way and just say, yeah, okay, if you're hungry and you can have, you can choose between half a banana or the oat. I always say, and this is no matter what age your child is, this could be a teenager, don't make food a thing. Because then they will make it a thing, you know, like, and it's similar to like, we were going to talk about not labeling your child as being a picky eater. And that's what I thought about. Like, yes, because now you're making food a thing to them, you know, and it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So maybe we'll jump into that, like not labeling someone a picky eater, Yes. And I think that's really, that was one of my first like big realizations when I started digging into this is how, you know, because I used to do it too. I I used to, especially with my four-year-old, because back when she was two, it was like one day she just woke up and she was just picky or she was at least rejecting food. And she was just like being fussy about it and didn't want to eat what we served and stuff like that. And that's when I realized that I really needed some more tools and that I, you know, I didn't really know what to do. So I, I basically jumped to, you know, all the things that we shouldn't do. I, I bribed and I rewarded and I threatened by saying, so if you're not eating your veggies, you're not having any more meatballs or something like that. Right. So I think, and also I called her picky and I also called the other two picky. And I did notice though, that when I did that, they didn't look too happy about it. And when thinking about it, when really digging into this, to this, it was like, wow, if we call our kids picky, it's actually pretty demeaning and, you know, and it's not really a positive label. It's a pretty biased label and nobody likes to be called picky. It's demeaning and humiliating and they just don't like it. But on top of that, it's also a, an excuse. So if you really, if you tell your kid that he's picky, they're going to, internalize that and it's going to be a narrative for them so that you can always return to the fact that they're picky so when they do that they're also allowed to say no thank you to a lot of food and that's basically where I think you know that's basically one of the most important things to to let that label go we do it all the time I think most parents label their kids in one way or the other and I think we should really let that go because it's going to keep them in those little boxes and those little categories And it's not really going to encourage them to explore other options. I hate labeling. I just gave this big rant on Instagram the other day. I think it was yesterday. I'm right now I'm eating a lot of plant-based things and people are like, are you vegan? And I'm like, ah, no, no, no. Like do not label anything. Like I just eat what I want to eat when I want to eat it. And sometimes, yeah, I'll focus more on plant-based stuff. Sometimes not. But if I'm ever in a phase where I'm like, oh, I'm going to avoid this for a little while. And then you go to someone's house for dinner and they're like, oh, like you're not eating this. And I hate when people comment on food choices that I'm making or, you know, like, yeah, I just want to cut out sugar for a few weeks and see how I feel. Like I'm just doing that for myself, but it starts when they're really young and labeling them as picky. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's same as I really try not to label certain foods as like treats 
because like food is just food, right? And so when you start to, I don't know, like you start to make a big deal about certain things like, oh, if you're not going to eat this, then you're not going to get your treat or we're going to have a treat. And yesterday I caught myself because he had a little donut thing and I caught myself about to say like, you ate dinner so well, like you're going to get a little treat. And I was like, no, 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 you're not getting a treat. (laughs) It's not a treat. And that is so true. And I think that's really an innate response for a lot of us. Like we want to categorize things. We want to understand them. So it's easier for us to put them in little boxes. So we know, okay, so you are vegetarian. Oh no, you are pescatarian. And and I myself, I do the same thing. I eat mostly plant-based and I don't really eat animals, but I do eat fish. And people really are, are struggling with that. Like, oh, so what are you? Are you this or are you that? And I'm like, I don't really know. And I, do we care? I'm just me, and this is how I eat. My diet is called Renee, and that is what it is. <laughs> that's basically all you need to know, right? Yeah. But I think we're so right in, in stop calling things for treats, because that's signaling to our kids that this is something that's really fantastic. This is maybe even sinful, but it's so good. And that leaves basically every other food as something that's not really as good, and it's not really as interesting, and it's something that we just have to eat in order for us to get to the good stuff. Like if he wants something that is sweeter or that would, you know, traditionally be labeled as a treat and it's a couple hours before dinner, that's fine. I don't have these rules around when he's going to get certain things. And it's similar to when I think about parents who, like I grew up with friends whose parents would lock treats, like treat things in a box in the kitchen because they didn't want them eating them. And I was like, wow, that is really, now I think back on that, like that is setting up just not healthy, you know, thoughts around food, that these things are so bad in a way that they have to be locked up and you can't just have them when you want to have them. Exactly, because there are two things that we're signaling when doing that. We're signaling that these are so sinful and so good that we need to lock them up. But also we're signaling to our child and maybe to ourselves too, you can't be trusted around these things. And that's basically what I really think that we should pay a lot of attention to, to give that trust to our children. To And that's also, you know, at mealtimes and, and with sweets and without sweets, but when we do sit at the dinner table and we, when we do hear our children say, I don't want this or I don't, I don't really feel like eating anymore, we should totally listen to that. And we should even, you know, verbalize that very explicitly. Okay. So I always ask my kids before they leave the, cha- the table. So have you like consulted your tummy? Have you, you know, have you done a tummy check? And I think up to a point right now where they're like, yeah, mommy, I did. Come on, seriously. You say that all the time, but it's so important. I, I feel like we need to put the responsibility for their eating where it belongs. And that's with them and them only because they're the only ones who can tell us if, if the tummy is full or if they need more food or what it is that they need. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And I will say I've learned over the last little while because Milo used to be an amazing eater. When he was younger, he would eat whatever we put in front of him. And I was like, wow, we're so lucky. But yeah, then he reached an age where he wanted to be in control, right? So I started to, like you were saying, put things like his foods that he enjoys and that he's used to always have those on the plate. Because what I used to do is 
if he wasn't eating his dinner, then I would go get some of those things. But now we incorporate them on his plate every single day. And what happens is sometimes he'll start with those foods and then slowly move into the other ones, or sometimes he doesn't, and that's okay. And you always hear people say, like, if they refuse something a few times, like, don't get frustrated and give up and never serve them those things again because you just assume that they're not going to eat it. Last night, we actually, we always make him his little plate of whatever we're having and with his safe foods on it as well. And then we put the salmon, I think it was salmon and veggies and couscous or something. And he ate the salmon. Like he ate almost all of it. And then he went and ate my husband's. And I was like, yes, because he has rejected what we have been giving him for so long now. And I just kind of like let the stress go about it. And last night he surprised us and I was like, oh, this is so good. But you never know what their little brains are up to and they might just eat it one day. And that's exactly so, that is so interesting because one day you just wake up and you're like, wow, now you're eating that. I thought you didn't like it and that you were never going to like it. But the thing is, when we approach it this way, it's called exposure, right? So it's basically just food exposure. And what exposure can be, you know, compared to is advertising. So if you see a product online or out there in the real world, if you see it enough times, chances are that you'd be more likely to buy that product. That's exactly why ads work. And it's exactly the thing, the same thing about exposure and food exposure at the meal, at, you know, at the dinner table. Because when we serve things enough times, and it might take, we really need patience because it can take 15, 20 times or even more. Sometimes it can take years before our kids have the courage to actually taste these things. But exposure works in these wonderful ways. So it's not like exposure isn't just that they actually taste it. It's also them smelling it, touching it, seeing others eat it cooking it. So if you can involve them in cooking so much, that, that would be so perfect because that's when they really get to, you know, get those sensory experiences about that food, which is fantastic because that's going to make them more likely to dig into these things. But basically we need to, when we do involve them in cooking, I also want to say that it's important that we don't do that in order for them to get them to eat it. So just a, you know, a neutral experience of, you know, getting to know these foods so they become more familiar. And that's the beauty of exposure, I think, because that's just a very gentle and respectful way of teaching our kids about whatever's out there in the food universe. It's similar to us. And like you talk a lot about having empathy. You know, if you go to a restaurant that serves some kind of cuisine that you've never been exposed to before, like sometimes I go to restaurants and I'm looking at the menu and I... I'm like, I literally can't order anything because I don't know what this stuff is. Like, I'm so uncomfortable. Like, okay, I'll have the green salad. But that's how they feel, right? When they're being exposed to all these things that they have no idea what they are. Like, you have to put yourself in their shoes and think about yourself going to a different country and being exposed to all these foods and being uncomfortable. Exactly. And it's not enough for us to say, because what we often do as parents is, oh, come on, you will like it. It tastes really good. It's really nice. But that's not enough because exactly if, you know, you and I were to go to a different country and somebody would say, it's good, it's nice, taste it. That wouldn't be enough. So if we can sort of break it down to our kids and more, you know, bite-sized little information, you know, and say, this is kind of, it's it's crunchy. So it's like that chicken you got the other day, the pan fried one. And the taste is more like this or that. And I remember you said you like that sauce. This is pretty much like that. Maybe you want to take a little mouse bite or try it or whatever. So I think it's about breaking it down and say, is it crunchy? Is it a little bit gooey? Or is it, you know, whatever we can do to help them understand it and familiarize themselves with it before they actually taste it. So can we talk a little bit about bribing or threatening or giving rewards? Like if you eat half your chicken, you can have a cookie or those kinds of things that parents resort to at mealtime. So like what are more gentle and respectful ways? And also why are those things not a good idea? Yes. So basically I think all parents in the world have probably resorted to some sort of bribing or rewarding at many times because granted, it is a way that kind of works, right? We, we actually, if we dangle on ice cream in front of our kids and we say, if you eat your broccoli, you will get this, chances are that they are going to eat their broccoli and that they are going to eat whatever you force them to eat because it, even though it's not forcing in the sense you have to or else, it kind of is because it's the opposite side of that coin. So it's controlling basically. And what happens when we do engage in these controlling strategies like bribing and rewarding, 
I want to say that it's, it's really not working long term. And studies have shown that when we start bribing our kids, we are making them not only less interested in, say, the peas or the broccoli, we are making them more interested in whatever it is that we're rewarding them with. So that could be the ice cream. So not only, you know, we're actually doing the opposite long term of what we want. It's not only about getting them to eat it, it's about getting them to explore it in their, at their own pace and getting them to like it or accept it so they can eat it. So that's one thing about it, that like it's not going to work. But the other thing about it is, and I think that's really interesting, is that it will, it, chances are that it will undermine their relationship with you, the rewarder, because not only would they like the food less and maybe even hate it because they were kind of, you know, bribed or punished or not punished, sort of controlled into eating it, but they will also come to sort of resent you for having done that to them. And, and you know, studies are young, we don't like to be controlled. Surprise, right? But we don't. And, and children don't either. So controlling our kids is, is going to do, you know, us a big disservice. It's not really going to help us long term what we want them to be. And also when we bribe our kids, say like with the ice cream and the peas, so you'll get the ice cream if you eat the peas, that is asking them to ignore their inner cues. Maybe they are actually full at that time. Maybe they are not feeling it for the peas today, but they ate whatever they needed from the table because they can actually maybe listen to their inner cues on what they need. But if we start dangling the ice cream in front of them, they're, we're asking them to you know, not attend to their inner cues and to their bodies. Whatever you're trying to get them to eat, it's making that look bad because it's like, in order to eat this, I'll give you this. So it's like, it's like shining a light on, you know, the ice cream or whatever it is. And then, yeah, lately I've been trying to explain to Milo, like, this is going to make your teeth strong and you're going to be able to, like, I'm trying to focus more on that and what's good about the different foods just to like try and get him to understand. Like sometimes I say like, oh, did you know dinosaurs eat a lot of this? Because they like, and he's like, what? You got to eat it too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's so right. If we can talk more about the role that food plays in our lives and what it can do for us instead of like, this food is bad for you and this food is good for you. This is unhealthy. This is healthy. If we can, you know, change our perspective a little bit and, and talk more about what the what role the food has and what it plays and what it can do for us. So like we have filling foods and we have, you know, that food that will give you some lasting energy. We also have foods that can give you quick energy, but that won't last that long. And we have, you know, tons of different foods like this will help you fight off sickness. Or this will make your teeth stronger or whatever it is, right? If we can, you know make our kids or help our kids understand these things instead of the other get more guilt-ridden and more moral judgmental approaches to food, then we have a long way, I think. There's something to be said about having this mentality about food that I can have anything that I want at any time. Because like, I'm just thinking about how most families treat like a birthday cake or cupcakes and it's a very like special occasion and that's it. Whereas like we are very much the kind of people that like we will just buy a birthday cake on a Tuesday and have it for dessert sometimes. And I've always thought like that about food and I swear it comes from my parents, like good job parents, but nothing is off limits. You know, I don't like labeling however I'm eating. I can have whatever I want whenever I want, like I don't stress about it, but I also understand the importance of fueling your body and nutrition. And I know, like be aware what makes you feel good, what doesn't make you feel good. And, you know, everyone's their own individual when it comes to that stuff. And it's instilling that kind of mindset when it comes to food into your kids. But I imagine that a lot of adults also have an unhealthy relationship with food. And so that might be hard to then teach your kids. So it's almost like you need to look at your own relationship with food and how you treat it, how maybe your family treated it growing up and things that you can do moving forward to kind of have a healthier relationship with food. Exactly. And I feel like, you know, the healing your own relationship with food is really, really important in order for you to, to be able to convey a, you know, the message to kids that they need to attune or they need to attend to their inner cues. Because if they don't do that, chances are that they're going to listen to external cues in order for them to determine what to eat. And we really don't want them to do that. I mean, when looking into back when I started Real Foodie, one of the things that occurred to me was that 
in America, what the way people eat here is often that they really pay much attention to the external cues, like when is the TV show over? Because they were eating, you know, at the, the, that TV show. So when is it over? That's when I stop eating. Or when is the plate empty? That's when I stop eating. When is the takeout box empty? That's when I stop eating. And basically, it was probably all founded back when they were kids, when people said, yeah, you need to finish your plate or you need to do this in order to get that. So if we can remove all of those manipulation strategies coming from outside and all the external motivators and really just let them be and let them be intuitive eaters, because up to the age of two or three, most kids are actually completely intuitive eaters. They know what they need and how much they need and when they need it. And that's so beautiful. But we start to mess that up at around that age because that's when they start being more independent and more like, yeah, like Nora, my, my daughter, who woke up from one day to the next, like, Mm-mm, not eating that. And that's when we really feel like, oh, my God, it's, you know, it's all slipping away from us right now. You're becoming a fuzzy eater. What can I do? And that's when we start manipulating and doing all these things that are actually messing up their relationship with food. That is so important. And because that's how I am, like sometimes I open the fridge and it's it's not a snack time. It's not a lunch time. It's close to dinner, whatever it is. And Milo will see an apple or a pear and he'll be like, oh, I want that. I want that. And I'm like, oh, you want that? Sure. Let mommy clean it for you. And here, let's go sit down and eat it. Like when he wants something, I do not like saying no. And, you know, within reason, but that's really important. Something that you will love that my dad always said when I was growing up is eat until you're comfortable. Yes, exactly. And that's that's also a little bit different from saying eat until you're full, because full can also be like, oh, you know, when we fat too much, eat until you're comfortable is exactly the beauty of it. And that's exactly what we should all strive for. Because I was like, why am I this way when it comes to food? So I was thinking back about things that I've been told and kind of how we treated food. And that was a huge thing. Like it was never like, you have to sit here and finish everything on your plate. It was like, okay, you're done. Like you're comfortable. Yeah. And they probably did it without paying too much attention to it. They probably just did it because that felt right. And that made sense to, you know, their parenting. For me, food is just not a thing. This is really the biggest gift we can give to our kids to actually enable them to, you know, attend to their inner cues and to become or to stay intuitive eaters. Let's talk a little bit about sweets. So I am very aware of sugar for a while. Like my hobby was reading about nutrition and watching documentaries and I was very into that. So I know a lot about sugar. I cut out sugar for like three weeks, like hardcore cut it out. This was years ago. And when I started to reintroduce it into my diet, I would get massive headaches, but now I'm back on the sugar bandwagon, but... Once you learn so much about something, I find it's hard to not be aware of how much sugar is in different products. What is your advice for parents when it comes to sweets and giving your kids things with sugar and your kids wanting things with sugar in them? That's also one of the questions that I get asked mostly. It's very much about removing the guilt and removing the moral judgment that we're placing on sweets as it is right now. Because Often we're doing, as we talked about just before, we're doing what most parents do is like that we're idealizing sweets. We're kind of telling them that this is so good, but it's also so bad. So you can't have it that often and you can't have that much from it. And what that really, you know, that really sends the message to our kids that this is so, so good, but it's also really bad. And the problem with that is not only that they, you know, will say, okay, it's it's bad, so if I eat it, I'm bad. But it's also going to make them you know, want to sneak off with it and not tell us about it when they had it. So that's a really bad recipe and a recipe that could lead to potential disordered eating. And you know, I'm a psychologist, so I actually don't know a lot about sugar and what it does to our bodies. So I'm more you know, from the psychological angle of it and, and how we're you know, how we are labeling these things and how we are communicating to our kids about sweets. And so I want to tell you what we actually do at our house about sweets and treats or not sweets because we have definitely stepped away from calling it that. But I used to do that too. But about sweets, especially candy, in Denmark, we have this, they have this tradition that's really widespread. Everybody in Denmark knows what it is. It's Friday candy. That's what it's called. 
And that's basically, you know, on Fridays, we all sit together in our little families and we, we have candy and mom and dad maybe have red wine or whatever. So, and we sit on the couch, we watch a show, we just talk or we play cards or we do something together while we have these sweets. And in a way, it, it's kind of going against what a lot of dietitians are telling us to do right now because they're saying, hey, we should neutralize the power sweets by putting them on the plate here and there and just, you know, make them accessible all the time. But I feel like one doesn't have to eliminate the other. It doesn't really have to be either or. Because what we do is that we have that Friday candy and we make sure that we really indulge in it and that we have, you know, that we're getting cozy and we're sitting on a blanket and we're enjoying it together. So it's not just mindless gobbling up of all the sweets and the, and the candy and whatever we're serving. It's something that we do together and we enjoy it. Other than that, we also, during the week, can say, hey, maybe on Tuesdays we get ice cream or, yeah, sure, you want a piece of candy here and there, and then they can have it, which is totally fine, too. So I think it's really about giving them the option of unlimited access sometimes and other times just regular access to these things so that they will know that it's not scarcity is not the problem here. It's not that I can ever, never, ever have them again. And also I get to make my own food mistakes sometimes by the unlimited access, because I think that's just so important too, that we actually teach our kids. And that could be like, we just had Easter, for instance, or it could be Halloween. That's usually when our kids come back with loads and loads of candy or chocolates or whatever, right? And that's when most parents are faced with this dilemma. Should I just let them eat and, and maybe overeat and maybe get a tummy ache or whatever, or should I restrict it? And I feel like sometimes it's a really good idea to consider giving them unlimited access and say, hey, this is up to you. Make sure you, you know, do your tummy check and, and kind of feel comfortable with it when you indulge in these things. But do as much as you want right now. I'm going to move to Denmark. <laughs> because that's that. the coolest thing I've ever heard like candy Friday I'm not so much I love candy but I'm more so of a chip person so often I'll be like do you want to put on your show and come sit with mommy and have some chips like you know just make it like a fun thing but yeah doing that it also takes the power away from so on so like treats but I absolutely love that I remember Easter time when I was little, I specifically remember eating, you know, those solid chocolate bunnies. Like I would just sit there and eat it like an apple, like just eat this whole chocolate. And then, yeah, I usually felt sick after. <laughs> exactly. And they learn, right? We all learn from that because it's not, it's not the best, you know, feeling when you just over ate the candy or the chocolate or the cake or whatever. My daughter came home from an Easter arrangement not long ago and she was she was like mom I actually forgot to eat lunch and dinner the only thing I had was sweets and sodas and I was my my imp, my impulsive like I, what I wanted to say to her was wow oh my god how could you do that that was really not smart and like shame her for it but I really stepped back and I said wow so interesting so how does your tummy feel right now well it doesn't feel good she said I I feel hungry but I also don't want to eat anything I just it doesn't feel good so we had that talk about how important it is to kind of listen to your tummy and how different you know food play different roles and how they can be good for us and sometimes you know that that eating a lot of candy on an empty stomach can give you a stomach ache and she really learned her lesson I think yeah just like eating too much of anything really you're not gonna feel that good <laughs> Exactly. Even if it's broccoli or peas or whatever, it's not like we need a balanced diet. So that's, that's just what we need to, to tell our kids, basically. If you had three resources to share with parents or with moms with regard to eating, nutrition with kids, what would those be? It can be anything. I've loved reading Marianne Jacobson. She is a dietitian who wrote a few books about mindful eating and principles that we can apply when we're trying to transform our child's relationship with food. And I think that's really, she has done some wonderful books and I think she's really having that mindset of being respectful to kids when, you know, teaching them how to eat right. Well, I will, yeah, I want to say that Ellen Satter, I, I mentioned Ellen Satter just before the division of responsibility. And I think she's written a lot of books too. There's one that's called Child of Mine, which is a really good one that also describes this division of responsibility. It's a little more heavy and it's a little more, it's very detailed and very into all the phases of from baby or from infant to baby to toddler and, and all that. So it, it can be a little bit heavy, but it has some really good in, information in it. And the last one I want to say is not, it's a book that basically doesn't address food per se. 
It's called Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. I've read that book and I remember being so mind blown by it because it's really about how bribes and rewards and punishments are just taking away everything that we want to give our kids. It's really about how, how, you know, how rewards are punishing too, even though we think, we think that we're maybe doing a good thing when we're, we're bribing and rewarding instead of punishing, but it's really basically the same coins, just the other side of it. So that's more like a parenting book that I think is, is something that we, at least in America, need to read. I don't know how Canadians are on these things, but I know that America is pretty much built on, up on behaviorism. So that's a really fantastic book, I think. Awesome. So I'll find those books and I'm going to put them in the episode notes so people can find them if they're interested. What is one piece of parenting advice when it comes to mealtimes, feeding kids, that you would like to see thrown in the garbage. So something that maybe parents do like often or that people say you should do that you think should just disappear and not exist. The first thing that comes to mind is what I hear a lot over here is that you need to get your kids to respect you. And I I always felt alarmed by that because I'm like, yeah, like, of course they will respect you if you respect them too. But I feel like, you need to get your kids to respect you comes often with a mindset that's more about, you know, having them be submissive to you and to be obedient and to be compliant and all that. And we're forgetting that this is not what parenting is about. It's really about collaborating and guiding and encouraging and all of that. And I think that will get get us much farther, really, than just the mindless obedience that we are trying to, that a lot of parents are trying to get their kids to do. And I think that they do it basically because they were brought on on that themselves. But I think they often forget how they felt about being, you know, punished into obedience. So that's one thing that I really want to see gone. Yeah. And then doing that also doesn't set them up with the proper tools to go and become adults because they have just had to do what they were told their whole life and with no explanations. Exactly. So they won't know what it is to be an ethical person or a person who really makes good choices other than the choices that they were told to make. And they don't know they should make these choices. Awesome. Well, where can people find you online? Your website is beautiful. I love it. So where can people find your website and you on Instagram? Yes. So they can find me on realfoodhero.com, which is also where I'm selling my four-week online course about how to handle piggy eaters. And they should definitely go check it out because there are little videos here and there and there were little tips and workbooks that you can download for free. But on Instagram and on Facebook, I am at Real Food Hero. So Real Food Hero is where you can find me. Awesome. So I'll put those in the episode notes as well. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I feel like... Doing this podcast, I just happen to find people that are in all these locations that I want to go visit. So I'm like, ah, as soon as we can travel, I'm going to go visit and meet all my friends that I made. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You should. Yeah, I can't wait to know either. It's going to be great. Totally. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.